as Kim prayed, it is wonderful to be worshiping together again this morning and to see and hear so many in the room uh, praising God together. We also want to extend a very warm welcome once again to those of you who are joining us online. And we are so glad that you are a part of this celebration live right now, or if you are watching it at some later point. And so if you joined us a little bit late, we want to encourage you to let us know where you're watching from and to let us know how many are with you uh, so that we can stay connected with you. And we are continuing our series today that we started last week titled The Heart of a Disciple. And uh, as we kind of discovered last week, we're also talking about the heart of a disciple maker, that, that we are talking about what are the characteristics of the heart of someone who is engaged in following Jesus Christ as a disciple and engaged in making disciples. And this continues the theme that we've had for the whole year. We kind of pushed pause based on the circumstances in the world around us. We felt it was necessary to take a pause on our our 2020 focus on discipleship and talk about the the in-the-meantime moment that everybody was thrust into with the COVID-19 and with the circumstances that surrounded that. Um, But I was reminded this week as I turned my attention to this message of a message that I preached back at the beginning of the year when we launched that theme. And we talked about the idea that discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. That that was the original vision, that as we become disciples of Jesus Christ, it should touch every single area of our lives, that, that it's the one thing that changes everything, that choosing to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to set our sights on him and to grow close to him and to draw strength from him and make that relationship with Jesus the most important relationship of our lives is the one thing, the one decision that should change everything in our lives. And disciple-making is no different. And so as we consider the heart of disciple, the heart of a disciple, uh, we're talking about what's at the core, what's at the center, what is at the, the sort of the root of our mind, our will, our emotions, what is at the root of our passions, and, and what is driving us forward, what drives a disciple of Jesus Christ, what drives a disciple maker uh, forward. And so that's the context. Last week we got started with the idea that encountering Jesus Christ, encountering Jesus Christ sets the heart of a disciple on fire. We looked at Luke chapter 24 and the story of the two on the road to Emmaus and how they, they walked on the road and, and, and they didn't recognize Jesus. And it was only after they recognized him and he then disappeared that they turned to each other and said, we're not our hearts burning within us while we walked on the road and he opened our minds to the scripture. And so that was sort of our our bottom line or our big idea um, that encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire. And we don't have to just do it once. It's not, it was never intended to be a once in a lifetime event. It was meant to be a daily or even moment by moment event where we encounter Christ through prayer, through his word, through the Holy Spirit. And as we encounter him, he rekindles the heart of a disciple to live for him and to follow hard after him. And we close that message with this idea that what if we were so close to Jesus as disciples of Christ that every time we walked into a room, 
Jesus walked into a room. That every time we moved into a situation that was desperate or where things were not going the way that they wanted, that we wanted them to go or, or the people around us wanted them to go, that when we entered that situation, Jesus entered that situation and had an immediate impact on that situation. That's the goal, I believe, uh, for a disciple, that we would be so close to Jesus that every time we walk into a room, he walks into a room and begins having an impact on that environment. And so today we're going to continue that series maybe build upon that, uh, looking at another aspect of the heart of a disciple. And today we're going to focus on the idea uh, that the heart of a disciple is hungry. The heart of a disciple is hungry. It's hungry for Jesus, it's hungry for his word, and it's hungry for his ways to become our ways, for his life to continue to impact this world as it has for the last 2,000 years, and for his life to impact this world through our Lives, And so I'll give you the bottom line early, and then we'll move through the, the, the scripture and the message, and we'll come back to the bottom line at the end as well. But the bottom line is that the heart of a disciple has a tremendous appetite for more of Jesus. The heart of a disciple is hungry for more of Jesus, has a tremendous, inexhaustible appetite for more of Jesus. That we never really say, yeah, that's enough. I think, I think I've had enough. I think I'm close enough to Jesus. I don't really need to pursue him anymore. I've had enough. And if we're not careful, this, this world can kind of push us in that direction. Like, don't, don't get too crazy about this whole Jesus thing. And so we want to be reminded that the heart of a disciple is hungry for more of Christ. And we're going to look at a passage from Hebrews chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, it's, I'll, I'll just give you a heads up, it's a challenging and convicting passage of Scripture, but I believe it's also a passage that if we study it and apply it to our lives, will bear much fruit in our lives. And that's the goal, is we want to bear fruit, that God's Word would come into our lives and bear fruit in our lives, through our lives, and that's why we're here. So the context is that in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, that really isn't ever identified as a specific individual, um, but they're making this case, and they're speaking to Jewish believers who have converted to Christianity. So they grew up Hebrew, they grew up as Jews, they grew up with the law, they grew up with all the customs, and now they have converted to Christianity. They're Christ followers, they're in the new covenant, uh, but they have some old patterns of behavior uh, that have to be reformatted. And he's right in the middle of a lengthy teaching on how Jesus is now the high priest, that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, and that we all have unlimited access to God the Father, God the the Spirit, God the Son, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And he kind of breaks that exposition of Jesus as the high priest to challenge his audience to strive for full maturity in Christ, to, to strive to be mature. And he even rebukes them for a, a lack of maturity. Um, and I think that some of this would apply to the church today, that, that some of this would apply to the American church or the modern church or the Western church today, that everywhere that people have believed in Jesus, there has been uh, a risk that they will sort of plateau, level off, stop striving, stop growing, stop moving on towards 
maturity. So that's the part we're going to look at today. Um, the, the verses that immediately follow this list some of the basic things that we should know already as believers, if we've been a believer in Christ for some time, and then warns about falling away, because that's the real risk, is that we wouldn't just plateau, we would actually fall away from, from Christ. And so that's all sort of built into this warning. And then uh, in chapter 6, he kind of closes this little section that we're just looking at the beginning of by restating his confidence in the believers, restating his confidence in the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers, and encouraging us towards perseverance. So we're just going to look at the first couple of verses there, um, verses 12 through 14. And so I'll read these one verse at a time and sort of stop and, and see what is this saying and what, are, what do we maybe take from that. And then we'll see if we can't bring an application uh, to, to the passage as a whole. But in verse 12, he says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And so he begins this little challenge or this little um, encouragement or exhortation to, to move forward and to grow in the faith and to become stronger by challenging them and, and saying, By this time... Whatever time that is, however long that is, you ought to be teaching others. You still need to be taught the basics again. And we don't know what by this time references in, in the amount of time, but the context is clearly more on the order of months or years than it would be on decades, that, that they've been believers for some time and there should be a progression from being taught to teaching others, from progressing from learning only to being one that what you have learned is now transmitted to others through your life. And we see that in this, in this text, that being discipled ought to progress into making disciples, that Jesus had his followers and he discipled them and he taught them. And then as he was leaving and, and going back up to heaven, he said, therefore, you go now and you make disciples of all nations, and you teach them to obey. So there's a progression from being taught to then being released to go and to teach others. And this should happen naturally. It should happen relatively quickly. As the author of Hebrews is saying, it should have already taken place for this group. And so that's the encouragement there. And it reminded me of a graphic that I've seen before that's kind of something that maybe pastors would pass around or church leaders would pass around, uh, but it contrasts sort of the modern-day disciple-making movement or discipleship strategy with Jesus's discipleship strategy in a really sort of convicting way. Um, you can see on, on the left side of that that you start with people who you try to get people to attend your church, and then you try to get some of those people connected, as many as possible. But, but then of those that get connected, you try to get some to serve. And then at the very bottom of the funnel are the people that go out and make more disciples. And so you see that it starts with a lot of people. The whole world of people is available. You get some to attend, some to connect to that body of fellowship, some to serve, and just a few go out and make disciples of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' strategy sort of represents an inverted funnel. He started with the three, Peter, James, and John, and they had a close, special relationship with Jesus. They were extremely close to him, and he discipled them, invested in them, 
trained them. There's good reason to believe that the 12 disciples, Peter had three, John had three, and James had three, that they were also discipling as they were being discipled by Jesus. They were discipling others. And then you have the 70 that are referenced multiple times in Scripture, or some translations reference 72. Either way, it's a bigger circle that that maybe those disciples had disciples, the people that they were transmitting their faith, what they were learning from Jesus. And you see how this worked. And then the 500, we know that there was a group of 500 that followed Jesus, that he appeared to after the resurrection, that that there was another broader circle, and it was that progression that changed the whole world. That's why there's several hundred people watching a service either in a room or online today, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, because of Jesus' model of discipleship really set the world on its head, really changed things for the whole world. And we need to make sure that we are focusing on a disciple-making strategy that rec- represents Jesus's more than what modern church has been. Like, it's natural to start making disciples very early in our faith. And that we don't have to, you see, sometimes we add to the left. We say, well, you don't just need to uh, attend and connect and and start serving. You need to be trained. You need to go to seminary or Bible college. And we add additional layers that further narrow that, or we get this idea that only people on a church staff should be making disciples. But Jesus never put those requirements. In fact, he widened the circle as he released people into ministry and into his disciple-making movement. And so we see all of that, I see all of that in verse 12, uh, that, that we are meant to be teachers very early in our faith and to then have decades of disciple-making that flows out of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. In verse 13, uh, he continues, he says, Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. And this idea of living on milk, milk has its purpose— Milk, in, in, in the original idea for all mammals, and especially humans, is that, is that when we're in our infancy, we, we drink milk. And it has what we need to be nourished and to sort of get, get the ball rolling. It's easy to swallow. It's easy to digest. It starts us out well. It sustains early growth. But it's insufficient for, for full maturity. If you, never, if you never move beyond milk to vegetables and to grains and to meat and to other things, then, then you'll be stunted in your growth. It, it serves its purpose. And so I couldn't help but kind of illustrate this because it helps us to see the... I knew if I did that I was going to drop something. Uh, that we move from sort of the sippy cup early in life. And I think the same thing should happen as we progress in our faith to something like a banana and a pear and a sweet potato that would be mashed up together. And now we can start to digest that a little bit better and eventually solid food that we can pick up and put in our hands. But we shouldn't tap out here either, right? Because there's something even better. And those of you who are adults, you know there's something a lot better than this. And we don't want to live on this forever in our human experience. We shouldn't want to live on this forever in our spiritual experience because there's steak and there's potatoes and there's asparagus. There's all kinds of amazing foods that we can enjoy. They take a little bit more work, don't they? They take a little bit more work, you know, getting that steak season just right getting the grill just right, 
putting that steak on, hearing that sizzle, like it's an experience. When you, when you move on from the finger foods or from the sippy cup. And so that's the analogy that the writer is making is that we, we need to start somewhere, but we, we shouldn't stop there. We need to move on. We need to keep progressing in our faith. We need to move on from that which is really designed just to be easy to digest, easy to take in, get that initial growth going. That has its role, but it's nowhere to stop. We want to continue. We want to progress in our in our, what we're consuming and what we're hungry for and what we're really after. Because in verse 14 he says, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. If you take a six-month-old baby and you cut up a steak and some potatoes and you start feeding that, they're not even going to know what to do with it. They don't have the teeth to chew it. They can't digest it if they swallow it. So there is a time and a place for each thing, but we need to make sure that we progress, that we don't kind of hit the pause button and say, yeah, just give me the sippy cup. I just want the sippy cup. I don't, I don't want to have to work for it. I don't want to have to chew. I just want to show up and, and enjoy uh, and not really grow, not become a teacher, not become somebody who is engaged in making disciples. And it really begs the question, what are we hungry for? What are we hungry for? And how hungry are we? As a dad, any given hour that I am at home, I might hear the words, Hey, Dad, I'm hungry. Right? Any parents relate to that? Like, we got four boys. They're between 7 and 14. They eat a lot. They get hungry a lot. And I'll usually respond with, Hey, hungry, I'm Dad. Because that's what dads do. We're supposed to, right? I think there's a contract somewhere. Zach resists me on this a little bit. I'm like, your day's coming, buddy. You're going to catch yourself in the moment of saying, hey, hungry, I'm dad. And you realize, oh my gosh, I just told a dad joke. But a lot of times I'll ask, well, there's bananas, there's apples, there's oranges. How hungry are you? Well, I don't want any of those things. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You're not that hungry. Because hungry people have been eating apples and bananas and oranges since the beginning of time. Or I might say, well, how hungry are you? Are you hungry enough to get it yourself? Well, no, I wanted you to get it. Well, then you're not very hungry, are you? Right? And so we can play this game back and forth a little bit. And I just got to wonder every now and then if we don't kind of say, hey, Dad, I'm hungry. And he says, well, how hungry are you? You got a Bible. How hungry are you? My word's right there. I've revealed like pretty much everything there is to know about me is in the pages of Scripture. Or there's Bible studies. There's books you can read. Uh, you can pick up a phone, the, the phone and, and start talking to a friend and say, why don't we get together and study the Bible together? We'll read the same things, get together, talk about it, make sure that we're holding each other accountable and praying for the lost. I mean, that sounds almost like a disciple group, a discipleship group. And so... I think the question becomes, how, how hungry are we, right? About a year ago, in February of 2019, preached a four-part series on one verse of Scripture from Acts 2.42, right? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell and was poured out. And, and we talked about that last week, because last week was Pentecost 
Sunday, and there were tongues of fire on, on the heads of the people and the languages. People were hearing languages that they didn't speak and understanding those. And, and it was this amazing event that was meant to sort of undo the Tower of Babel when the languages were confused. Now everything's coming back together and people can speak this spiritual language that they understand. And, and the church was initiated and it went out from that place into all the world. And that's, again, why we're here today. But we titled that series Devoted. And the idea was that they were devoted to four things in the early church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And I remember saying they were devoted to those things like a hungry person is devoted to finding food. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, just like a hungry person is devoted to finding food. And part of our problem here in modern America in the West is that we don't get really hungry that often. Like every now and then, we miss several meals with a lot of activity and we start to really feel hungry. But most of the time when we feel hungry, we're just ready to eat again. We're not, we're not actually to the point where our bodies require food or we're in some sort of risk or our health is in some sort of risk. And so we don't We don't even know how to pursue God like we would pursue our next meal because it just clicks in, you know, three meals a day with snacks in between. And that's the diet we should have on God, three meals a day with snacks in between on the things of God, the things of Christ, on his word, on prayer, on fellowship with one another, on worship, all of those things. Do we seek them? How hungry are we for them? And do we make the mistake of sort of having a Sunday activity In the place of a daily priority on scripture, on prayer, on fellowship, on spending time with believers, on growing, on making disciples. Do we focus on an event or are we talking about a lifestyle? Do we come to God occasionally for what he can do for us? Or do we approach him regularly throughout each day for what we can do for him with a heart that says, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to reach out to? How can I be engaged in your kingdom expansion? And so for me, this all comes back to the focus on discipleship, to the focus on disciple making. And we defined that last week as building a relationship with someone or a group of people to help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. And so you either say, you know, I'm not ready to do that, so I need to get into a relationship where someone will teach me to trust and follow Jesus, help me to learn those things so that I can fulfill the Great Commission, so that I can begin a relationship with someone in relatively soon, move from milk to meat relatively soon, to be able to teach someone or help someone learn, that's what teaching is, to trust and follow Jesus. And last week I asked if if you would commit, if you would commit to one of those two options, to either being discipled or to start making disciples. And I still extend that invitation. I still extend that. I think because it's so simple, we discount the power. Because it's so simple, like you build a relationship with someone and help them learn to trust and follow Jesus as you're learning. Like I met with my new disciple group on Tuesday afternoon, and we were talking about this. Like it's not a scope and sequence 
thing where you take 101, 102, 103, 104. Okay, now you're like a basic. We move on, 201, 202, taking classes. And at the end of a seven-year process, okay, now you're a disciple and you can start making disciples. It's like, no, build a relationship with someone and help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. You can do that while you're still learning to trust and follow Jesus. It's more a relational environment where you say, let's figure this out together. Let's read the same things. Let's see how the Spirit speaks to each of us individually. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's pray for the lost. Let's pray that God would show us people that are far from God that we can invite to come into the family of God. And you do that with another person or a group of people and you have accountability and you have fellowship and you learn and you grow together and you become a disciple as you're making disciples. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And it's not easy just because it's simple. I'll I'll warn you, it's not easy even though it's simple. In fact, it's kind of hard at times, and it's challenging, and it's difficult, and it's messy because it involves relationships, and relationships are messy, and there will be frustrations, and things will get uncomfortable at times. And yet, it's the number one thing that Jesus told us to do. It's the number one thing that Jesus told us to do. Okay, i got to go ascend into heaven. i got one more thing I need to tell you all to do, and that's to go and make disciples. That's to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. That's, that's what I need you to do. It's the one thing I need you to do. And I remember a pastor explaining it to me this way one time. He said, if I was leaving for a month and I said, I, I need you to come by and I need you to mow the lawn and trim the edges. Can you do that? And I say, oh, absolutely. Well, I get there, and I notice that the garbage can is out, so I take the garbage in, and I see that, you know, the the dishwasher has sprung a leak, so I get busy fixing the dishwasher, and I see other problems that have taken place inside the house, and I get busy and preoccupied on those. And I never mow the lawn, and I never trim the edges. And he comes home, and it's like, look at all the wonderful things I did inside the house. He says, but you didn't do the one thing I told you to do. And now I've got fines from my HOA, and I'm going to get kicked out of the neighborhood. Or something, you know, crazy like that. If we get distracted by good things and we miss the first priority of Jesus, then we haven't fulfilled the first priority of Jesus, which was disciple-making, which is why I'm encouraging each and every one of you to to become a disciple or a disciple-maker, and to do that very, very soon. And there's a response form that I shared last week that you can just say, hey, I would like to be a disciple maker. Do you have some people that would like to be discipled? Or say, hey, I would like to be discipled. And do you have some people that are disciple makers? And I know that this is happening in some places, in some pockets, but I don't know where all of those are. So if you're engaged in this, can you fill out that form and let me know where you're engaged in disciple making so that we can pray for that? Not going to try to micromanage it. I'm not even going to shove people into your group. If you are doing this and you are good, just put that in the comments. If you are not doing this and you want help finding a group, we want to help you find a group. And I know this will be cumbersome and this will maybe take some, some, some time to get established, but it will take a lot more time if we don't ever get started. And so I want to encourage you to move in that direction. Um, As I mentioned last week, 
I'll be helping disciple makers by coaching them, putting together some monthly groups where you can get together um, and be coached in that process and making disciples. I've got a disciple group, a men's discipleship group that's meeting on Tuesday afternoons. If that fits in your schedule and you're a man and you would like to be discipled, let me know on the little form so that we can get you connected and get you plugged in. Because I got a lot of feedback after last Sunday's message. Uh, from people that were in the room and people who watched online. And I said, wow, you were really fired up. You were preaching about being on fire, and you were really fired up. And somebody said, man, you were really passionate about that. One person even asked, were you a little bit angry? (laughs) And I said, well, no, I, I wasn't angry. I was fired up. I was passionate. But the more that I reflected on last Sunday's message throughout the week and reflected on the feedback that I got, I feel like I owe you an apology as my congregation. I'm sorry that that message stood out so much after me being here for two years. It shouldn't have. I'm sorry that I didn't get the clarity and the passion for disciple-making from day one at Linwood. That's my apology to you. That message should not have stood out a little over two years into my, my ministry here. That should have been one more message where he's banging the drum on discipleship, banging the drum on disciple-making, banging the drum on people discipling other people into the faith, into the family of God. This is not for a select group of super-Christians. This is for every single believer to be engaged in disciple-making, either being made into a disciple or making disciples who will make disciples. That's the goal. That's the vision. That's Jesus' way. And I can't go back and start over, but I can say from this point forward, that's going to be the focus of my ministry here, is disciple-making. It's not just the 2020 theme. It's, it's the theme. It's the vision. We've talked about this as an LBA. We've prayed. We've fasted. we put goals together. We had everything moving in the right direction. We were training up disciple-makers. Then COVID kind of put a wet blanket on the whole world, and... I'm excited to be picking that back up and to be pushing this forward. And I believe that there is nothing that can stand in the way of what God wants to do in making disciples at Linwood Church, at every church, on every corner in this world. That's God's plan A, plan A for the world. And I'm reminded this week as well that we often overestimate what we can do in the short term. We overestimate what we can do in the short term. But we underestimate what God can do in the long term. We underestimate what God can do through a group of people faithfully moving forward with him. We underestimate what God can do through a lifetime of faithful obedience. And so I was a little discouraged that 100 people didn't sign up at the end of that sermon. And God reminded me, it's you're overestimating what you can do in the short term. Don't. Don't underestimate what I can do in the long term. And so I don't know about those of you that are on the other side of the camera. I feel a little tension in the room. I feel a little maybe conviction in the room, and that's uncomfortable, and I understand that. And my goal is not necessarily just to make you uncomfortable for the sake of making you uncomfortable, but conviction, just like hunger, can be uncomfortable but it can also lead to tremendous things. If we will respond in faith to the conviction that we feel, 
it can lead to tremendous things in our own lives and in the lives of other people. That, like, once we become Christians, once we become part of the family of God, once we trust in Jesus and we put our faith in him and we are redeemed and we are righteous before God and we will spend eternity with him, once all of those things happen, it's really not about us anymore. It's about all the people that can come to faith in Christ through us, through our relationships with them, that we have been strategically positioned in relationships, in neighborhoods, in workplaces. And I look out over this room and I realize that thousands of people, thousands of lives are touched by the lives that are just in this room. And you go on the other side of the camera and there's thousands more lives. And that God wants to reach the whole world through those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. And we have an opportunity to reach out and to respond in faith to that, to that call to be disciple makers. And so I'll remind you, the heart of a disciple has a tremendous appetite for more of Jesus, for more of his word, more of his ways, and more of our personal relationship with him. That we have a relationship with Jesus that goes back and forth all day long. That we start early and we move through the day in relationship with Jesus. That we have a hunger and a desire and an appetite for more of his word. That we spend time in the word every single day to learn about him, to understand who he is, who God is, what God wants from us, what God wants for us. And back at the beginning of the year when I did the It's Time to Grow series, we, I showed a video about Bible engagement and a landmark study that had been done on the importance of Bible engagement. And so it's one of the reasons that, that I talk so much about being in the Word. As if you remember the video, the survey that they did, and I found the full results this past week, and I got really excited. If you're interested in them, send me an email, and I'll send you the full results. But it's really fascinating. They surveyed over 400,000 people between the ages of 8 and 80 across 75 denominations in 24 different countries, believers and non-believers. And they asked them about how much they engage in Scripture, and then they asked them a whole bunch of other questions about what their lives were like and the presence of certain activities, whether positive or negative. And they found that of those 400,000 people, there was really no difference between those that did not engage Scripture four times a week or more and those that were non-believers. But those that engaged Scripture four times a week or more were 228% more likely to share their faith just by simply being in the Word more often than not, more days a week than not. 228% more likely to share their faith. 407% more likely to memorize Scripture. David said, Thy word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. If you're in the Word four times a week, four days a week, you're four times as likely to be memorizing God's word, putting God's word into your heart. 59% less likely to view pornography and 30% less likely to experience feelings of loneliness. We're talking about massive shifts in our daily lives as a result of engaging scripture four times a week or more. Incidentally, we did a survey here among Linwood and we found that 55% of the people who took the survey were in that group four times a week or more. So about half of the people that took the survey were engaging Scripture four times a week or more. 
And I just get excited when I think, what if that was 80 or 90%? Like, what would that unleash? How many, how many people would be sharing their faith? How many people would be minim- memorizing Scripture? How many people would be engaged in disciple-making? But I mentioned it just a moment ago. The thing that caught my attention the most was, was underlined on that slide where it was talking about the results. And I bolded this for you on another slide so you can see this and read this. In fact... The lives of Christians who do not engage the Bible most days, four times a week or more, are statistically the same as the lives of non-believers. When it comes to lifestyle, the presence of sin or the absence of sin, the presence of sharing your faith, memorizing scripture, doing those things, there's statistically there was no difference between believers and non-believers when they don't engage scripture on a regular basis. And that's why 50% of divorce, you know, the divorce rate's a little over 50% in the culture, and they say the divorce rate's about 50% in the church. And, and they do these statistics about viewing pornography in the culture and in the church, and they don't see a big difference because, by and large, most Christians aren't in the Word four or five times, six, seven times a week. And so we, can, we have tremendous ground that we can take in the culture, in our own lives, if we will simply engage God's word on a daily basis. It will make a tremendous, if you're not already doing this, it will make a tremendous difference in your daily life. And those of you who are, you can probably point to a time when you started and things changed in your life. Because this is just powerful. So we want to be having a hunger for Jesus, for his way, word, and for his ways that we really want to be obedient to Christ, that we want to be a people who are spending time with Jesus in our personal relationship with him, spending time in his word, learning who he is, what he expects, and then actually following his ways, obeying him, asking the question, what would Jesus do, and then doing that, and pursuing Christ-likeness, hungry for Christ-likeness. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can you finish the the verse? Because they will be filled. Because they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are filled. When When we're hungry enough to open our Bibles, when we're hungry enough to get into a discipleship group, when we're hungry enough to go to prayer regularly with Jesus, and we're hungry enough to prune some things out of our life in order to build more of God into our life, we will be filled. He doesn't say that about everything. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for money, for they will be filled. Not necessarily. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for power. He doesn't say that. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and when we hunger and thirst for more of Jesus, more of his word, more of his ways, there's a promise in scripture that we will be filled. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us. Because we are filled not just to fill ourselves, but to fill others. That we are filled to be conduits of God's love and his grace and his mercy that flows into our lives and out through our lives into the world around us. And so that's my hope, that's my prayer. And I invite you to respond in faith as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for the challenge that comes at times to move towards you, to get a little hungrier for you. 
Help us, oh God. Help us to be a people who are hungry. Hungry for you. Hungry for your word. Hungry for your ways to be our ways. And help us, Lord, to be eager to pass that on to others. Eager to be discipled or to be a disciple maker. Whatever you're saying to us right now, Lord, may we hear your spirit. May we respond in faith. May we be different tomorrow because we were here in this place at this time and had an encounter with you that set our hearts on fire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.